Pentecost reminds us of several items and things about the Holy Spirit. First of all, Pentecost reminds us that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Yes, God forgives us of our sins and He promises eternal life, but Pentecost reminds us that God wants to fill us with His very presence. He wants to dwell with us and in us. Pentecost also reminds us that we've been given spiritual gifts so that we might witness for the Lord. Thank you for joining us for a word from the Lord. Today, Archbishop Foley Beach brings us his message entitled, The Day of Pentecost, The Promise Fulfilled. Here now is our speaker and teacher for a word from the Lord, Archbishop Foley Beach. A prayerful, humble Roman Catholic nun obeyed the voice of the Lord and wrote to the Pope, encouraging him to pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When Pope Leo XIII received the letter, he had been going through a time of being dismayed and concerned about the terrible conditions among the nations and the horrible things people were facing. So he responded to the letter by summoning the College of Cardinals to a prayer vigil at the Vatican on New Year's Eve, 1900 to ask God for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the earth. Well, that same evening, New Year's Eve, 1900, in Topeka, Kansas, which would have been a few hours later than at the Vatican, a young Methodist pastor named Charles Parham had decided he must do something about the emptiness of his spiritual life. He gathered with some friends and they were studying the Bible and the book of Acts and they began to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was described in Acts 1-5. If you remember, Jesus said there, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Charles Parnum and his friends were praying that night. And then it happened. The prayers of the Pope and his college of cardinals were answered but not quite like they expected, and and they probably didn't even know. That night, the Holy Spirit descended on Charles Parham and his friends and several spoken tongues and began to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Three years later, in 1903, Parham spent three months holding revival services in Galena, Kansas, and the Cincinnati Inquirer wrote the following... It is doubtful whether in recent years anything has occurred that has awakened the interest, excited the comment, or mystified the people of this region, as have the religious meetings being held here by the Reverend C.F. Parnum. Almost three months have elapsed since this man came to Galena, and during that time he has healed over a thousand people, converted more than 800 People who have not walked for years without the aid of crutches have risen from the altar with their limbs so straightened that they were able to lay aside their crutches. Here the followers receive what they term the Pentecost and are enabled to speak in foreign languages, languages which they are utterly unfamiliar. This alone is considered one of the most remarkable things of the meeting. Last week a woman arose during the meeting and spoke in an unknown tongue for ten minutes No one apparently in the audience knowing what she said. An Indian who had come from the Pawnee Reservation in the territory that day to attend the services stated that she was speaking in the language of the tribe and that he could understand every word of the testimony. 
An African-American minister by the name of W.J. Seymour attended some of those meetings, and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Later, he was invited to preach in Los Angeles, and he planned to preach a series of sermons on the Holy Spirit and the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. Well, after the first meeting, it was just too much for the elders of the little church. The next day, when Reverend Seymour arrived to preach, he found the doors of the church locked. A member of the congregation opened her house, and three days later at 312 Azusa Street, the Holy Spirit descended again, and the people had a similar experience to the original Pentecost. What has become known now as the Azusa Street Revival lasted all night and all day for three years. During the Azusa Street Revival, visitors came from all over the country and various types of Christian churches from around the world. It spread to the Presbyterian Church, to the Independent Baptist Churches. It even spread to the Anglican Church. In 1906, the Church Missionary Society from the Church of England had missionaries in India. A 16-year-old Indian girl began to speak in a language no one could identify. The canon of the cathedral invited friends to come and pray for the girl in hopes of finding someone who could understand the language. At last, someone did. The language she was speaking was Arabic, and the prayer she was offering was for the safety of the Christians in Liberia, a country she had never heard of. This outpouring continued to spread. It spread to the Methodist Episcopal Church. It spread to China. New York, London, Amsterdam, Calcutta, and Little Rock. Everywhere the story was the same. People were filled with the Holy Spirit, and some of them began to speak in unknown languages. Of course, this was frightening and horrifying to most church-going people. And those with this experience were run out of the mainline churches. And soon what we call today Pentecostal churches sprang up all over the country and were relegated to the other side of the tracks. And by the time I came along as a child, those were the weird and strange Christians, the holy rollers, that sort of thing. But the Holy Spirit is not one to be kept in a box or relegated to the other side of the tracks. In 1960, the Living Church, a publication of the Episcopal Church, contained the following paragraph in an editorial. Speaking in tongues is no longer a phenomena of some odd sect across the street. It is now in our midst and is being practiced by clergy and laity who have stature and reputation in the church. You see, in previous months, the Reverend Dennis Bennett, rector of the prestigious St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, had shared with the congregation his experience of speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Spirit. He was promptly asked to resign. <laughs> the bishop assigned him to a dying church that was about to be closed. Soon the church had hundreds of new members and a powerful ministry which impacted the neighborhood all around it. This news carried across the country in Time magazine and Newsweek magazines. Within weeks, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and Methodists were sharing similar stories. The movement began to grow in the Roman Catholic Church, and seven years later, in 1967, faculty and students at Pittsburgh's Duquesne University 
experienced a modern-day Pentecost on a weekend retreat. It's fed to Notre Dame, Michigan State University, and the University of Michigan. In 1972, 20,000 Roman Catholics attended a meeting at Notre Dame to hear Belgium Cardinal Leon Sunans declare himself to be a Catholic Pentecostal and speak of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. In 1975, Pope Paul VI celebrated a charismatic mass in a jam St. Peter's Basilica, adding his affirmation. And in the 1980s, Pope, Paul, Pope John Paul II was, who was active in a charismatic fellowship and his personal confessor and preacher claimed to speak in tongues. This movement, which came to be known as the Charismatic Movement, did not bypass the Anglican Communion. In July 1978, before the 10-year meeting of bishops of the Anglican Communion, there was a pre-Lambeth meeting held called the Anglican International Conference on Spiritual Renewal. At Canterbury, England, Anglican bishops and priests from 25 countries met for worship, community, revival, spiritual renewal, evangelism, social action, and ecumenism. They celebrated a three-hour Eucharist, and many of the bishops were so excited that they kept singing outside the cathedral after the closing procession, they were promptly told to be quiet by the gatekeeper. The Charismatic Anglicans held a similar conference 10 years later before the 1988 Lambeth meeting. During the 1990s, what was now called the Charismatic Movement had tripled, touching 277 million people and in most Christian denominations throughout the world. And that was according to Anglican missiologist David Barrett. Now, if I was to do a survey of the congregation this morning, I have no doubt from my discussions with some of you that this movement of the Holy Spirit has touched and impacted many of you as well. It is also interesting that the leadership of the new Anglican Church in North America is mostly a byproduct of the Holy Spirit movements of the 1970s and 80s. As one bishop said to me, I don't think we would have been able to take our stand and lead this new endeavor if it had not been for the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we received. So one nun obeyed the voice of the Lord and wrote a letter. A pope and his cardinals prayed. Reverend John Parnum and his friends prayed. And the world received a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now why did I take us on this history lesson of the Holy Spirit from the last century? Do I expect everyone to speak in tongues this morning? I mean, after all, it's Pentecost. No. Not, so don't worry, no. But don't miss the point. The lesson we heard from 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that God distributes the gifts as He wills. It's not something we choose. But why the history lesson? Because this is what Pentecost is all about. People were filled with the Holy Spirit. People received spiritual gifts. People witnessed for Jesus Christ. The promise of God was fulfilled. If you remember after the Holy Spirit was poured out on that day, the Apostle Peter, in response to all the questions that were going on, stood up and preached a sermon. And at the end of the sermon, people say, well, what must we do? And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he says this, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is fulfilled. The forgiveness of sins. The baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. This is supposed to be normal Christianity. This is what God intends for his people. The forgiveness of our sins. The filling of the Holy Spirit and using our spiritual gifts, witnessing for Jesus Christ. Isn't this what happened on the day of Pentecost? The people were filled with the Holy Spirit. They received spiritual gifts. In this case, it was the gift of tongues. And they used those gifts for witnessing for Jesus Christ. This is normal Christianity, at least according to the Bible. Now, I know we fluff this up with all kinds of religion, and we get sidetracked so easy, but this is normal Christianity. If you're going to have a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, then you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. For it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to know the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to commune with Him or to hear His voice. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us divine counsel, who comforts us in our afflictions. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us spiritual truth and who guides us in the way in which we should go. By the way, just a little side note here. Remember this about the Holy Spirit. He he will never lead you to do something that contradicts His Word, the Bible. He wrote it. All Scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16. I mean, God breathed. Breathed by God. It's the same word for spirit in the the Greek and the the, the Old Testament Hebrew. Same word. In 2 Peter 1.20, He writes, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, man. But man, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who guided the men who wrote this book. Now, I know throughout the years there's been a lot of confusing and in many cases unbiblical teaching about the Holy Spirit. However, you and I can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Unless the Holy Spirit is leading it, it's not a Christian life. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Who is the Him? The literal translation of that is, all things I can do through the One empowering me. Who's the One? It's the Holy Spirit. Too many of us are trying to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. This is like trying to turn on the lights in your house without electricity. Or it's like trying to drive your car without gasoline. Or it's like trying to use your smartphone without a battery. Or like trying to send an email without being connected to the internet. It just doesn't work. We follow Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. We obey the Lord in the Holy Spirit. So question, when does a person receive the Holy Spirit? Personally, I think it's the wrong question, but I'm going to answer it, or try to. Many believe you receive the Holy Spirit when you're baptized, and there's biblical and historical evidence for this. Many believe you receive the Holy Spirit after you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and there's biblical and historical evidence for this. Many people believe you receive the Holy Spirit sometime after you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. A second experience, a second blessing, a baptism of the Spirit. 
And there's a biblical and historical evidence for this. Personally, I don't think you can put God in a box on this one. Jesus said it's like the wind. Remember what he said in John chapter 3, verse 8? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The question I believe we should ask is this. Not, not when did the Holy Spirit come or when does he come, but does the Holy Spirit have me? I think that's the question that we should be asking. Have you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus? If not, you can be baptized, pray all you want, go through all kinds of ritual, but until you surrender your will to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit cannot lead you. Now, I know for many of us, I mean, it is a process. But let me ask you, of what you know at this moment, have you surrendered yourself to the Lord? As soon as you put up resistance, no, Lord, not this, not that, we begin to quench the Holy Spirit. And he's limited in what he can do in and through our lives. So back to the question, when do we receive the Holy Spirit? Every day. Every day. I pray every day that the Holy Spirit will fill me. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Every day. You see, it doesn't matter if I was filled yesterday. It doesn't matter if I was filled when I was baptized. It doesn't matter if I was filled after I was saved and accepted Jesus. What matters is am I filled today, right now? Because we're human, we sin. And so we leak the Holy Spirit. We stray. And we have a daily need to be filled with His presence. How, how many times have you, like me, been on your knees before the Lord and you confess your sins to Him and you ask for His forgiveness and all of a sudden you feel His peace and His presence just wash over you like a hot shower? It's the Holy Spirit filling you with His presence. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 18, he said, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. <clears throat> Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the word he uses there, be, be filled, is, it means to continually be filled. Continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just a, a one-shot deal. Now, Pentecost reminds us of several items and things about the Holy Spirit. First of all, Pentecost reminds us that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Yes, God forgives us of our sins and He promises eternal life, but a Pentecost reminds us that God wants to fill us with His very presence. He wants to dwell with us and in us. Pentecost also reminds us that we've been given spiritual gifts so that we might witness for the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 all tell of varieties of spiritual gifts. These are spiritual abilities, not natural abilities, which God gives in order to get His work done. He wants His gospel proclaimed. He wants sinners to repent and turn to Him. He wants to heal the sick. He wants to deliver those who are possessed. He wants to feed the poor. He wants the prisoners visited. He wants the widows and orphans cared for. And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will have the spiritual gifts which will lead you to minister for Him and by Him. 
For some of you, you break down in tears when you think of someone dying without Jesus. For some of you, you can't stand to see someone sick without wanting to pray for their healing. For some of you, your heart breaks when you see someone going without a meal. This is the Holy Spirit within you. If we are growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ, I truly believe we'll know how to use our spiritual gifts and we'll learn how to use our spiritual gifts to His glory. Now, I began by quoting from Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? It's when you begin to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in your life. As you begin to obey Him, utilize your spiritual gifts, as you witness for Him, as you live your life, His fruit begins to manifest in you and through you. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, aren't these attributes we all want in our lives? Who doesn't want love? especially God's love. Who doesn't want joy or peace or kindness? The self-control, one. well, you, you may want to argue about that one, but the Holy Spirit, God's promise is fulfilled on this day. And every day, a person yields him or herself to the rule of Jesus in their lives. If just a few people are willing to yield and to receive His Spirit, just a few people, then perhaps we could see a modern-day Pentecost in our nation, another Azusa Street revival, or another charismatic movement, a Spirit-filled time for our time in history. So this morning, how about you? Where are you in the Holy Spirit today? Is He leading your life? Is He guiding you? Is He directing you to fulfill the purposes of Jesus? Or is He still some kind of concept out there somewhere? Thank you for listening to a word from the Lord. I would like to take a few moments and and give you the opportunity to become a believing Christian. I know today we have a lot of folks that go to church and are real religious, but if you were to ask them if they really know Jesus Christ, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. And I don't know if you're one of those people this morning, but if you've never become a believing Christian, I'd like to give you just a simple ABC, not a gimmick, but but just the way it is. A is for acknowledging that you're a sinner. We live in a culture which says, you know, basically we don't make mistakes, but we do. And when we measure up against God's Ten Commandments, um, all of us have fallen short in some way. We've all messed up, and, and that's called sin, and we need to acknowledge that. The B is, is to believe, to believe in Jesus and what he's done on the cross is God's remedy for our sin, is God's solution for being alienated from him, to believe that through Jesus I can be made whole and I can be healed, that I can be forgiven. And the C is for confess, confess Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. A lot of folks receive him as their savior. They want their, what I call, fire insurance, make sure they don't go to hell. But they aren't willing to allow him to be their Lord, to be the one who uh, is the master of their life. 
and, and to confess that, uh, to be willing to share that with those you love and those you care about, that Jesus is your Lord. So it's really that simple, um, and yet it's that powerful that it makes such an eternal difference. Um, acknowledge that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the solution. And confess that Jesus is your Lord. I invite you to stop what you're doing right now and, and say a simple prayer. Uh, confess your sin to Him. Tell Him you believe in Him. And then begin to confess Him as your Savior, Lord. If you've done that, I encourage you to uh, let me know. I'd like to send you some materials so, to help you grow in your Christian faith. It's, it's like becoming a, a baby all over again, and there's some things you need to know, some, some things you need to learn in order to walk with God. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of Christ. Please visit us online at awftl.org.